Right. Can you hear me now? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, our text for this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter, six, uh, chapter 1, and we're going to read together from verse 3 down to verse 6. The title of my message is Blessed, or well, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3, and we're going to read just down to verse 6 for your convenience. It's up there on the screen. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons to Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. You know, the letter to the Ephesians is a marvelously concise yet comprehensive summary of the Christian good news and its implications. Nobody can read Ephesians without being moved and also challenged to a consistency of life and wonder and worship towards God. Many readers have been brought to faith and stirred to good works by the message of Ephesians. It is a rich book with tremendous resources because it's in this book of Ephesians that we find the instruction and encouragement and commands that some of us have memorized and known by heart for many, many years. Verses such as, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is in the book of Ephesians that we, uh, that, that we are learned of the church being a mystery and, and formed before the foundation of the world in chapter 3 to be exact. It is in the book of Ephesians, this book that we're studying here this morning, that you will find the verse on, on the unity of the church and, and the body of Christ, the, the seven ones, such to speak. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And many churches' doctrinal statements have has Ephesians 4 on the, the unity um, in their uh, document uh, or their doctrinal statement. I certainly have had it in all three churches that I have pastored here in the U.S., it is indeed in the book of Ephesians that we find the instructions of being filled with the Spirit and uh, resulting in submission and, and thankfulness and, and making melody in our hearts and, uh, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It is in the book of Ephesians, beloved, that we will find the warfare, the battle that we are in, a battle against principalities and rulers and of this dark age that we are living we are instructed in chapter 6 of Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God, being clothed with the spiritual armor. What a rich book this is. You know, Hetty Green was known as America's greatest miser. She managed an inherited fortune that she got from somebody so shrewdly that she was also considered the greatest woman financier in the world. In 1916, she died leaving an estate that was worth nearly $100 million, a lot of money during that time. During her life, she would eat cold oatmeal because she didn't want to spend the money to heat the water. 
Should I say water? Yeah, water. Water. <laughs> water is the diet form of water. <laughs> we, so we are told that her son lost her leg from a relatively minor injury because Hetty took him to a number of free medical clinics instead of calling for a doctor and pay away like all normal people would do. Hetty Green had tremendous resources but didn't make use of them. And it is so of this book of Ephesians. It is a book of tremendous riches and resources and we need to make use of them because if we don't, we could we too could die like Betty Green, poor in spite of her riches. Yes, indeed, it is a book of riches. The book of Ephesians is about the riches and the fullness and the inheritance that a believer has in Christ. God's resources are boundless and always available to his children, you and me. It introduces us to the blessing of redemption, whereby we receive our salvation. And in that word redemption and salvation comes the blessing of, of justification and forgiveness and, and adoption and reconciliation. These are all spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with. All these terms are different facets of the magnificent diamond of the doctrine of salvation, spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with. No wonder Paul is so excited and bringing honor and blessing to God in the introduction here. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us. And when he says that word bless, he's thinking of all these things I just mentioned to you. The book of Ephesians teaches you who you are, how rich you are, and how you should use those riches for Christ's glory. Paul uses several terms in this book to describe our abundance, riches and resources. He refers to riches five times, grace 12 times, glory eight times, inheritance four times, fullness or filled up or fills six times, and the key phrase of this whole book being in Christ, no less than 15 times. Not only is this a book about riches, but it's also a book about the church. Because believers are in Christ, they are in the body, the church. Ephesians focus on the basic doctrine of the church. What it is, how believers function within it. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is the apostle's expression of praise here. Now the opening section of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 to chapter 2 verse 10 divides itself naturally into two halves. The first half consists of praise and the second half consists of prayer. In the praise half, Paul blesses God that he has blessed us in Christ with every special and spiritual blessing. While in the prayer half, he asks that God will open our eyes to grasp this fullness of this blessing, which I don't think we have, and that's why I'm preaching the sermon this morning, enough. Let's look a bit at the apostle's expression of praise here. Did you know that in the original language, these 12 verses, chapter 1, verse 3 to 14, constitute a single sentence. Verse 3 to 14 is one 
sentence, if you would do what Paul did when writing this in a modern-day English class, your teacher will be horrified and you will not pass your grammar test. He neither pauses for breath nor punctuates his words with full stops. Yes, you will fail your English grammar test if you do that. But needless to say, it is an outburst of praise and adoration towards God for this blessing and Him blessing us. And Paul is so excited and filled with the Spirit that he burst out into praise and he started dictating his speech and it just pours out nonstop out of his mouth like a continuous, continuous cascade of water. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who have blessed with every spiritual thing in heavenly places. Bless you, God. Thank you, God. The whole paragraph is a joyous expression of song and a hymn of praise and, and tribute and thanksgiving, a doxology or indeed a eulogy to God. It begins by blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing. He, he says, because we are in Christ and because of the virtue of our union with Christ and with Him, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, a phrase which may well mean every spiritual blessing of the Holy Spirit is available for you and me. And what he's saying is that God the Father is the source or origin of every blessing which we enjoy. Therefore, he deserves all the praise. And as we read, we see that God is indeed himself the subject of almost every main verb in these verses. It is he who has blessed us, verse 3. It is he, God, who chose us, verse 4. It is he who destined us to be his son. It is he who bestowed on us his grace. It is he, God, that lavished his grace upon us. It is he uh, made known to us his will and purpose which he set forth in Christ to unite all things to himself eventually. Then turning to the verbs, to the nouns, Paul refers in quick succession to God's love and grace and His will and the purpose and also His plan for you and me, the church and the world. Thus this whole paragraph is full of God, the Father who has set His love and poured His grace upon us and who is working out His eternal plan in our lives. And Paul is so thrilled that he, that he calls the saints and the faithful to join him in this praise. He says, bless the one who has blessed us. We notice here that the very first of these blessings is the blessing of being chosen and predestined. Listen to the text. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adopt us as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. We see the word choose in verse 4, and you see the word predestined in verse 5, and you will see the word predestined again if you go a bit further in verse 11. This is the first and primary of all heavenly blessings. Now, God's choosing is not something that is obscure in scriptures. This is how he works. In Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, listen to chapter 2, verse 13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through 
sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for his, this he called you through our gospel. That's the key. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the uh, believers in Thessalonica, we thank God that God chose you, God saved you, He sanctified you, He granted you faith in the truth, and He called you through the gospel with the purpose of you gaining the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now many find the doctrine of election difficult. Didn't I choose God? Someone may ask, to whom he must answer, yes. Indeed you did, and freely you did, but only because in eternity God had this plan. Didn't I decide for Christ? Ask somebody else to whom we must reply, yes, indeed, you did, and freely, but only because in eternity God had first had you and the church, the body of Christ, in his mind. Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of choosing an election. And we should beware of anyone who tries to systemize it too precisely or rigidly, such as Calvinism or Arminianism. Somebody might say, isn't the doctrine of choosing an election uh, that is something you kind of hold back when you are evangelizing, and I'm an evangelist at heart. If God chooses some and sends others to hell, according to the Calvinists, isn't that kind of an offensive doctrine, especially if you're pleading with the sinner to come to salvation? What about free will? It has nothing to do whether you have free will or not. This is where all gospel preaching starts. It starts with the sovereignty of God. It starts with the recognition that you can't save yourself. And that is what Paul is trying to get to his readers here. Don't get stuck on the doctrine of election here. What Paul is trying to say is that it is God the Father who has by his mercy caused us to be born again. After listening to the gospel, we'll get to that now. You make no contribution to your spiritual birth. It's all him. And by that mercy you are given an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, received in heaven for you. You are protected by the power of God. That's all he's doing here. You were chosen for justification and sanctification and glorification. You already have justification because you receive Christ. You're in the process of sanctification. The next thing that's going to happen to us is glorification at the rapture when we are taken out here. He chose you for glory. The reason for his choosing is because God is God. This is where our salvation begins. And this doctrine of sovereign choosing, predestination, and sovereign election is what determines not only the beginning, but the ending of our salvation when we are eventually glorified. He is sovereign and he indeed is God. That gives me great confidence that it is not about me. It is all about Him. And because it is the work of God, we are eternally secure. We all made some New Year's resolutions, right? We're on day number what? Nine. How many have you broken? Hey, come on now. But when God saves us, He's sovereign. He keeps you. It's not about me, it's about Him. All I have to sit on His lap and in, in his embrace and enjoy the journey 
he's taking me somewhere. I don't understand this thing about predestination and election and Arminianism and, and Calvinism. I don't understand it, but I'm glad that he did it. Listen, it is not likely that we will discover a simple solution to a problem which have baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. I'm sure Rick, as he had some of the students and dealt with these issues um, with <laughs> uh, concerning this, I have had some wonderful discussions, no arguments, right? <laughs> this doctrine of choosing and free will or Calvinism or versus Arminianism has caused divisions and splits in many churches. It was not invented by Augustine. It was not invented by Calvin even. On the contrary, it is without question a biblical doctrine, and no biblical Christian can ignore it. It's there. According to the Old Testament, God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to be special people. You shall be my own possession among all people. According to the New Testament in verse 1, of Ephesians, I just read it to you here, he has chosen before the foundation of the world an international community called the church, and he calls the members of that church saints. Through Ephesians chapter 1, it's a, so th though Ephesians chapter 1 is a so-called proof text to those who believe in election and predestination and that we have no free will, I believe what Paul is emphasizing here is not that you have no free will. He's emphasizing and praising God that our salvation is tied to a very essential character of God, and that is He is in control. He is the boss. He is sovereign. It is all about Him and not about us. What Paul is saying is that God started this concept of salvation before the foundation of the world and that he will complete it at the end in resurrection and glorification and his blessing is granted to the saints and faithful because they were chosen. It is all about him and not you and I. So yes, I see this thing to keep my sanity when it comes to the doctrine of choosing an election. I put the emphasis on God choosing the church rather than the individual. And that makes sense for me because the same terminology in chapter 1 and also in 3 is used before the foundation of the world. He had the mystery gospel in his mind. Makes sense to me. It is the church that was chosen and it is called the mystery. That mystery was not known in other ages. It is the church that is predestined, the whole church the community the church but here's the thing you have to get in how do you get it by responding to the gospel let's go back to the, the Thessalonians listen to chapter 2 verse 13 again we should always give thanks to God for you brethren beloved by the Lord because God has chosen you there's the choosing from the beginning of salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you. How? Through our gospel that you might gain the glory of Jesus Christ the Lord. No sinner is capable of choosing God, choosing Christ, choosing life, choosing salvation by Himself. We are dead 
in trespasses in sin. Pastor Rick preached on that about two or three weeks ago when he dealt with Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead and we are buried and we are blind. Salvation is a work of God alone through the preaching of his word, especially through the gospel that was revealed to the Apostle Paul, which he calls our gospel in our text here. Furthermore, does not Romans 10 confirms that faith comes by hearing the word of God? Romans chapter 10, let's turn there on the screen there. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him when they, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Listen to verse 17. So faith comes by God choosing us. It comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That's how you're saved. You hear the gospel and you respond. Once you hear the gospel, you have a choice. That is why we need to preach the gospel. When you respond, you are in the church and it is the church collectively that is predestined. We are all going to a place. Predestined. You are in him and he is in you and because you are in him, you are eternally secure and sealed by the Holy Spirit cannot lose your salvation, eternally secure. Not because of Calvinism, no, because the Holy Spirit seals you when you make a commitment. Man does have a free will. What does the Calvinist do with the whosoever will come? What did he do about for as many as received him? What did they do? Call unto me. What about the knocking on the door? The Bible teaches through these scriptures that you have to respond by using your free will. I remember when I got saved. Talk about Calvinism's irresistible grace. Oh, but once God te te uh, comes and he, and he zaps you, you, can, you cannot resist it. You, you, whether you like it or not, you are going to heaven. Six times, 18 years old, the Holy Spirit convicted in going in and out of that church. Why did God not just choose me the first time? Talk about irresistible grace. I resisted six times. January resisted. Actually sat on my hands when the preacher said, anybody here want to get saved like a Billy Graham type of thing? Uh, just raise your hands. I'm not going to raise my hands. I'm sitting <laughs> with my hands glued to the seat. Then the scripture that did it for me, John chapter 1 verse 12. For as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And I received Christ into my life. By my free will, I received Jesus. I believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. And God saved. And here I am 40 plus years later, and I'm still on the road. And many of those people there are still on the road today. You say, how do these things go together, Pastor Philip? This doctrine of elect election and predestination and also free will. They go side by side. Don't tamper with either one of them. They are like two tracks, two parallel tracks that don't come together until we in heaven. Never should we feel when we pray for somebody and ask God to save them that we are violating their human will and also their freedom. 
It will be absurd to ask God, I don't know, Lord, if I should ask you to save that guy or that girl, Lord, because uh, you might be tampering with his or her personal freedom. You've been a Christian for very long. I'm sure that you have had some kind of conversation with someone who had trouble with the doctrine of election and predestination. I'm almost through here. For those who embrace it, especially Calvinism, understand it in a certain way like Calvinism, for them it is the most important of all doctrines. For those who, who don't understand it, it, it is the most distasteful of all doctrines. It, it offends them. The notion of most people who call themselves Christian is to be skeptical about this because it seems unfair. It seems that this is impinging on human freedom to suggest that the merciful, long-suffering, gracious, and loving God of this Bible would invent a dreadful doctrine like election would be, have us believe it is an act of grace to select only certain people for heaven and by exclusion others to hell. That comes perilously close to blasphemy, I believe. Five-point Calvinism makes God a monster who eternally tortures innocent children, men and women. I do not believe that is what Paul is saying here in our text. In essence, I believe Paul is saying salvation is not a matter of, it's not a matter of justice or fairness. It is a matter of mercy and of grace. The fact that God chooses is essential to the very essence of who he is. It is all over the Bible. But man has a free will to choose after he has heard the gospel. I don't understand it, and it's okay. That's why he's God, and I'm just this humble Philip Duplessis from Africa, now living in the USA. Paul is saying there's no place to boast because this is all a work of God. This election thing is pride crushing because it is not about me. It's all about him. But election is also God exalting and joy producing. It is the sinner's hope we are eternally secure because it's all about God. Paul blesses God for this spiritual blessing. What Paul is saying is that we have Nothing to fear between election and eternal glory. It has been predetermined before the foundation of the world. And I love that. It's not a new thing. He had it in his mind all the time. We're headed for glory, folks, absolutely. And it will all was all determined before the world began. That's the first and the greatest blessing it, it compasses. All of the rest that you can look at here. Let me close with the second half of this opening statement here where Paul praises God and then he prays. He actually prays for you and me and for the writers uh, or the listeners that they will understand what he just shared with them. And I have it on the screen there, Ephesians chapter 1, verses um, 16, if you want to uh, quickly turn there in conclusion and in a way of prayer, I want to pray this prayer of Paul. Uh, uh, get into shape. Ephesians, Philippians. 
Okay. Listen to verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. Have you ever studied the prayers of the Apostle Paul? They are huge. And I wish we could learn to pray this type of prayers for one another. Because they are deep and they are necessary. We sometimes pray these Mickey Mouse prayers. Oh, Lord, we want to uh, thank you for Auntie Sandy, uh, Auntie Jones. And we are so, so sorry that she locked her cat up in the bathroom, Lord. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you will open that door. And sometimes we need to pray those, those prayers. But listen what we need to pray. He says, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Oh, that I might pray that Pastor Rick, or Pastor Rick, that, that Rick, that, that the Father of glory may give to you, Rick, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that every time you mount this, this pulpit here, that you can just bubble over uh, and share this knowledge with your congregation. In my life, like 18, that the eyes of your understanding may being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glory of his inheritance is in the saints. So Paul, given this praise here, then he prays that people understand all the spiritual blessings that he has shared with, with, that, uh, with his readers and to the congregations during that time. Thank you, Lord, this morning for your presence with us. Pray, Lord, that you will continue to just work in our lives. And may the sermon that I just echo, Lord, in the minds and in the, um, the hearts. Um, Lord, even through this pandemic, that did not close the doors, and we are so grateful that we can have a place to come and worship you in spirit and in truth. Let us now, Lord, uh, sing this final song and uh, we are dismissed in Jesus' name. Amen.